1 Samuel 16, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you should do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. And Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's an oft-repeated idea about the first televised presidential debate between the two major candidates of the two major parties, and it was between Nixon and Kennedy. Uh, it was the first time it was televised on TV. And there is an idea, and it may be true, but we didn't have the sophisticated polling data, so I don't know if this is true, but it's an idea that was reported and continues to be reported, that those who listened to the debates 
especially the first one on the radio, thought that Nixon had bested Kennedy. And those who watched it on TV thought that Kennedy had bested Nixon. Now, this was before, uh, before the days that we have now when everything is so carefully scripted, but, but Nixon showed up with a, a five o'clock shadow. He refused makeup. He didn't think that was something that a man should use. He had a light gray suit on, and the background was light gray. And then there was Kennedy, who was actually not a very healthy man, but he knew how to act a healthy man. And he was uh, in a dark suit, which contrasted with the background, and he looked young and healthy and strong. In other words, people thought he looked like what? A president, that he looked like a president, which if that anecdote about those who watched on TV is correct, it may be that they weren't so much listening to what he was saying, maybe Nixon was the better debater, maybe he had the better arguments, but Kennedy looked the part, and he certainly did, didn't he? He looked like a president. Well, what we have here is a situation in Israel. We have the first king, and what did he look like? He looked like a king. If you were going to cast a, uh, a person in the part of king for a play or a movie, you would pick Saul of Tarsus, a head taller than everyone else. He looked like somebody you would want to be king. And he started very well, as Robbie pointed out in, uh, in, in a, a, a recent sermon. He started very well. And then he made his first mistake, and with his first mistake, he lost the dynasty. And then with his second mistake, last week we saw that he lost not only the dynasty, but he lost the kingship for himself. So the search for a replacement was on, uh, but what would be the, the criteria? What criteria would the Lord apply to this search for a new king? And, and more generally, what is important to the Lord when he looks at human beings? And that's the story we have today about that search for a new king. Now, there's a transition. As you know, our chapter divisions are, are sort of artificial. Sometimes they're very accurate, sometimes not so much. But if you look at the last verse of chapter 15, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that grieving bleeds into the next chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. In other words, it's time to get on, Samuel. I've rejected him. And then he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And there's something of a contrast here. The impetus for having a king had come from the people. We want a king in order to be like the other nations, but now it's God taking the initiative saying, I have provided for myself a king. And so he sends Samuel to go find that king among Jesse's sons. Now Samuel was afraid, it says. This is somewhat unusual. You don't find Samuel being afraid of much, do we? But Samuel was afraid. He says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And then the Lord told him to take a heifer and, and offer a sacrifice, and that would kind of mask a little bit what was going on there. And he did take a heifer and he did do a sacrifice. And then he shows up at Bethlehem and the elders come out and they're afraid as well. It says they asked him if he, if he came in peace. In verse 4, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Now they must have heard, as all Israel would have heard, about this rift between Samuel and Saul. And here Saul shows up 
and they're wondering, is, is this part of a civil war? Is this part of a, uh, this rift? And will we get caught in the middle of it? If we help Samuel, will we be in trouble with Saul? And so they were afraid, and he said, yes, come peaceably, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Then it says he consecrated. He told the elders, consecrate yourselves. In other words, set yourselves apart. Come with me to the sacrifice, verse 5. And he consecrated, he set apart Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And then Jesse brought his sons. And that's what we have in verses 6 to 10. And what we have is the first son, Eliab. He shows up and he's the firstborn. And firstborns had certain rights in those days. They, they got uh, a better part of the, the inheritance. And so this would be a natural one to choose. And Samuel was very taken with him. He saw him, and when he looked on him, and by the way, all through this chapter, we find this verb, to look on, to see, to look on. So pay attention when it says looked on. So he looked on Eliab, and he immediately concluded, surely the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, that's what anointed is. A Messiah means anointed. The Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look, here we have it, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see or look as man sees or looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Whom did did, uh, did Eliab look like? He looked like Saul. And so Saul looked like a king. Eliab looked like the one you'd want to be king. And he thought, surely but God says, no, that's not the criterion I'm going to apply. This is, this is the kind of criteria that humans apply. We can't see hearts. We can see the outward appearance, and we're, we're often overwhelmed by outward appearance. And he says, that's, that's, that's what humans do, not necessarily criticizing it. It's, we're limited in what we can see. He says, but the Lord can see more than that. The Lord can look on the heart, something that you and I can't do. We get a window to the heart through a person's actions, through a person's words, but we can't look at the heart. But the Lord can look at the heart. And so he says, that's the criterion I'm going to apply in this search for a new king. And then we have Abinadab. He passed before Samuel. And Samuel says, nope, not this one either. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then we have the third one. Looks like they're going down by birth order. Shammah passed by. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then all seven of them passed by. And then Samuel is, is a bit mystified at what's going on here because he was told that it was going to be among the sons of Jesse and all seven of them have passed by and the Lord's rejected all of them as king. And then Samuel asked the logical question, do you have any more? He says, are all your sons here? Because I know it's one of your sons, but it's none of these. Are there any more? And then Jesse says, well, there is one more. There's one more. He's the youngest, uh, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, the interpreters have done all sorts of things with this, but we don't really know why he was still keeping the sheep. It looks like a fairly prosperous family. They could have had somebody else keep the sheep. So we don't know really what was going on and why he was still with the sheep. Uh, but he was with the sheep. He wasn't at this, this, uh, this offering, this, this meal. And so Samuel just says, well, call him. We're not going to get started until he arrives. And he arrived in verse 12. He sent and brought him in. And it says he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. 
That's interesting, isn't it? So he might have looked the part of a king too. He might have been much smaller than the other ones at this point, but he was, he was beautiful. He was handsome as well. And so what do we get here? So uh, the outward appearance doesn't qualify anybody for the Lord's service, but it also doesn't disqualify anybody. So if you are drop-dead gorgeous, don't worry. You are not disqualified, but neither are you qualified by your external appearance. So it neither qualifies you or disqualifies you. He happened to be a good-looking lad. It looks like it was a good-looking family, uh, but that wasn't what qualified him. And uh, we see that he's looking for the heart. Now remember, back in chapter 13, we, we heard this. In chapter 13, let's see, where is it? Um, verse 14. We heard this back when the Lord was beginning to reject Saul. But now know your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's what we find here, that, that the Lord was able to see David's heart and he chose him therefore. Now, Samuel then anointed him with oil and he made him the Messiah. He made him the anointed one. So he, uh, in verse 12, arise, anoint him for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And then we have something remarkable that happened there. In verse 13, it says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, rushed upon David. That's an expression that we find about only three people in the Old Testament. We find that the spirit rushed upon Samson, uh, one of the last judges. We find that the spirit rushed upon Saul, and we find that the Spirit rushed upon David. Now, we have other expressions that are not quite as striking, but the, the Spirit came upon. But the only times, the only persons on whom the Spirit was said to, to rush were Samson, uh, Saul, and David. However, there is a difference here. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So there is, a, there is a permanence about the Spirit's rushing upon David that we don't find in the case of Samson and we don't find in the case of Saul. We find in their cases, when they were called upon to do something extraordinary, that they were giving a, a rush of the Spirit. Uh, for example, when Samson would do some of his, his great feats of strength, it says the Spirit rushed upon him and he was able to do something supernatural in that moment. The same with Saul. Against the Philistines, the spirit rushed upon Saul, and he was able to, to do these great military feats. But here we have a distinction. We have the spirit rushing upon David from that day forward, a, a permanence about the Holy Spirit's, the, the spirit of the Lord's presence on David. Now, we see the contrast immediately. And this, this text is, this chapter is divided into two. We have David anointed by Samuel, and then the second part is David appointed by Saul. And the second part is the appointing by Saul of David. But we find the contrast between verse 13 and 14, the spirit rushing in a permanent way upon David. And then it says that same spirit, verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So there's not a permanence in his case of the spirit being upon him. 
And then, even worse, it says a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. A harmful spirit from the Lord. So he didn't only lose the presence of the, the, the spirit of the Lord, but a harmful spirit came upon him. Some translations have evil spirit, or I think harmful is better. A harmful spirit. Now, this, this language may, may trouble us. How is it that the Lord is dealing in harmful spirits? That, that may trouble us because we know that the, the Lord is, is holy and that he's not the author of sin. But this troubles us, but it doesn't trouble them. It doesn't trouble the people. They recognized immediately that if there was a spirit coming upon Saul and the Lord is sovereign, then, then the Lord is the one who is in control of this situation. In other words, they believe perhaps more strongly than we do that the Lord is absolutely in control of all things material and spiritual. And they immediately recognized and they said, behold, they saw what was going on. Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. And so what did they, what did they suggest? Well, we would call music therapy, music therapy. And we all, we all understand music therapy, don't we? We all understand how music affects us. And, and we use music. We use music in our worship service, don't we? And I don't know how your hearts were touched today, but, but mine was touched in different parts of our, our time together as, as the music got to me in ways that, that uh, prose words would not have. And, and, and they suggest music therapy. And so he accepts the idea. Uh, they say, find someone, in verse 16, who is skillful in playing the lyre. When the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul says, please, go find one. And then there's a suggestion here, verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now we know something that they don't know. And this is, this is very skillful literature writing here, isn't it? Because we know something about the, a son of, of Jesse. His hasn't been named yet, by the way. This son of Jesse has not been named yet. And then, lo and behold, in this conversation with the afflicted king, one happens to say, you know, I, I, I met a musician once. I remember he was a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, there is a, in, in Samuel, you will find sometimes that things seem to be a bit out of order. Because David is not yet a man of, of war. He's not yet, he's a man of valor that we'll find out. He was good with, with bears and, and lions and things like that. But, but this was not his reputation yet. And so it looks like they're, they're importing some later things we know about David into this description of David here. Um, and what Saul knows about David is what we already know about David, and that's he's a shepherd. The, the young man doesn't mention that, but Saul sent the messenger to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. That's all we know, and that's all Saul knew. But it looks like there, there's some looking ahead to what David would become here in this description of David. And so David goes with a gift from Jesse, and he enters the service of Saul. And what does he do? He enters the service of Saul, and he does two things. He's the court musician. He's the, the, the private musician for Saul, so that when the harmful spirit from God comes upon him, he's able to play and soothe Saul 
And Saul is refreshed and he becomes well and the harmful spirit departs from him. But that's not the only thing he did. If you look to verse 21, it says, David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of 1 Samuel. Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. So he's the one that carried his his weapons into war. In other words, the spiritual well-being of the king and also the physical well-being of the king is put in the hands of David. He is ministering to his spirit and he is protecting his body. And it's, once again, very skillful writing here because what we have in these two sections, we have David being the favored anointed one of the Lord. And then in the second part, we have David being the favored anointed one of the anointed one of Saul. So Saul is the first Messiah. He's the first anointed one. And now David is the favored not only of the Lord, but he's the favored of the first anointed one as well. And there's irony as well that Saul is placing his well-being in the hands of his own successor without knowing it. But we who are the readers, we know. And so we're wondering what's going to happen, that he has been anointed by God, and now he's been appointed by Saul, and he's the one who's going to take his place. I want you to notice, in the text we read in the New Testament from Acts chapter 13, we found that Paul did what Paul and the other apostles often did, or always did, if they were preaching from the Old Testament, which was their Bible, they would find a way, a path, from, from the story to Jesus. And here, as we look at this with Christian eyes, we see some paths that are very clearly leading to Jesus. I want you to notice who are some of the, the most prominent protagonists and persons in, in this story. We have the Lord, we have the messianic king, who is David, and we also have the spirit of the Lord. So we have the Lord, we have the Messiah, and we have the spirit of the Lord all acting. And the Lord favored his Messiah, his anointed one, and the spirit rushed upon the Messiah in a permanent way. And as I say it that way, is this beginning to sound familiar to you? If we go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John present Jesus in different ways. And Matthew leads with, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Jesus anointed one, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you turn over a couple chapters to chapter 3, verse 16, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here we have the same three, in a sense. We have have the Lord, we have the Messiah, the Anointed One, and we have the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon the Messiah, in a permanent way. Therefore, if you go back, uh, back up a little bit in Matthew 3 to verse 11, and you hear John the Baptist preaching, 
He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so what we have in the New Testament, thanks be to God uh, for believers in Jesus Christ, that we are baptized with the Spirit in a permanent way. Not like Samson or not like Saul, just for extraordinary efforts. Although we do find in the book of Acts that there are times when the Spirit enables his people to do extraordinary things. We read things like, then, full of the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up and preached to the multitude. So the, the Spirit does empower believers for extraordinary feats. But there is a permanence, like in the case of David, Messiah, And in the case of Jesus Messiah, who himself was baptized with the Spirit so that he could become the baptizer of all who believe in him. There's also this this theme, as we saw in in 1 Samuel, about appearances. Appearances, that God, God looks on the heart. He doesn't look on external experiences. And it's really interesting to note that we don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Jesus looked like. And maybe our minds have been shaped by some images we've seen of some some renderings of what Jesus looked like. But we don't know what he looked like. But there are a couple of interesting prophecies that suggest, one suggests, that maybe he wasn't that good looking. Unlike the actors that portray him in in the renderings. And there's another one that indicates very clearly that no matter how good-looking he was to begin with, he was marred almost beyond recognition. In Isaiah chapter 53, for he grew up before him, verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And if we back up uh, to chapter 52, verse 14, it says, And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the kindred of mankind. So maybe not particularly attractive to begin with, but certainly through what he went through after his his trial, during his trial, after his trial, in the crucifixion, so badly marred that people turned their faces from him. And why did he do that? Well, this prophecy goes on and explains, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There's an ancient, a fairly ancient description of Paul but we really don't know what he looked like either, but that description of Paul is not very flattering. It says he was stocky, short, bow-legged, and bald. Probably not how we've seen him portrayed in the movies either. And, And that may be accurate because we find that Paul had to answer those who criticized him. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he says, you say about me that my, my physical presence is not impressive and that my speaking is not very good. And, and actually, we find a pattern like that. We find that, that God seems to 
prefer sometimes those who are the least likely candidates. We find that throughout redemptive history. We find Abraham, he was a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, and God called him. We find Moses, who, who said, I, I've never been eloquent, Lord. Don't, don't call me. We find Gideon, who said, I'm, I'm the least one in Israel. Why would, you, why would you come to me? We find Saul himself, who says, Lord, I'm, I'm from the smallest tribe, and I'm the least in my clan. We find Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably a, a young teenage girl from a, a backwater. We find Mary Magdalene, whom God chose to be the first one there at the tomb to meet the risen Jesus. We see that this is something that, 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 that God delights to do. And Paul brings this out. You remember those Corinthians were saying to Paul, you're not a very good-looking guy, are you? And you sure don't speak very well. Paul says this, think about yourselves, folks. 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, we see that in the maximum expression. We don't see it that much in David, because David turned out to be a, a hunk after all. But we see it in Jesus, the son of David, and particularly in the cross. A crucified Messiah was not what people had in mind. A crucified Messiah was not a compelling message on its own to, to the, the Greeks who valued wisdom. A crucified Messiah was, was inconceivable to the Jews because they had not yet put together these two strains in Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah and about the servant of the Lord who would be stricken. And when they came together in Jesus, people didn't recognize him. Some did, many did, but many did not. And Paul brings that out. Rather than hiding and saying, yeah, I know it's not very impressive, but, well, we're sorry about that. On the contrary, Christians have always led with the cross. Notice what Paul says. Since in the wisdom of God, verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 1, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, Greeks, you tried. You had your philosophers. You had your Zeno. You had your, your Plato. You had your Socrates. You had your Aristotle. You had all them, but you never knew God through your own wisdom. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified we preach Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I would never have written what Paul writes in the next verse. I would have never referred to the foolishness of God. That sounds almost blasphemous, but he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he's referring to the cross of Jesus. God delights 
to use that which is despised in order to save the world. Mark Twain wrote a book, one of his many books, uh, called The Prince and the Pauper. And it's one of the, it's, it's a delightful book about mistaken identity. There's a, a prince, in his rendering, it's, it's Edward, who's the son of Henry VIII. And Henry VIII is not very healthy, but he has this beloved son, his only son, and he's to inherit the throne. And, and there's this pauper and this poor man with an abusive alcoholic, poor little boy with an abusive about alcoholic uh, father, and they have an encounter, and they realize how much they look alike. And just for play, they change clothes. Just for a moment, just for play, the prince wants to give him the, the opportunity to dress up like a prince, just once in his life, this, this poor little urchin. And then immediately something happens, and the prince runs out and gets mistaken for the pauper, gets kissed, kicked out of the palace. And then you have the adventures of these, these two boys, one learning to be prince, this, this pauper, and, and another learning to be a pauper but knowing that he's really the prince. And you can imagine how it ends. It all ends well, of course. But, but during the prince's time out in the world as, as, a, as a destitute person, uh, his father dies. And so he's not the prince anymore. What is he? He's the king. And nobody, nobody recognized him. He was the king of England, the king of Great Britain. But nobody recognized him. Why? because he was incognito. He didn't look like what they thought a king should look like. And so they didn't recognize him. Although there was one man who kind of, it, he just played along. He treated him as if he were the king, although he didn't really think he was. He wasn't sure. But he treated him as if he were. And that man is highly rewarded at the end. Now, maybe a crucified Messiah doesn't look like a king to you. Like in the Prince and the Pauper, one day he will. I'm ruining the story, but you can already imagine how it turns out. One day he did look like a king again. And one day, a crucified Messiah, he will look like a king to absolutely everybody in the universe. But it's essential that we recognize him now. Even incognito as a crucified Messiah so that when he comes and everybody recognizes him as king, we're ready to be rewarded greatly for having bowed our knee to him when we had the opportunity. Bow the knee before a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the words of the Old Testament that always point us to Jesus. And we thank you that we live in such a favorable time, a time of the Holy Spirit having been poured out upon old and young men and women of nations all around the world and not in a, a temporary way, but a permanent way. And we thank you that we live in, in the time of, of Jesus coming, coming as the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Lord, we, many of us, didn't recognize him for years. We thank you, O oh God, for opening our eyes that we might see. And we pray, O oh God, for all of us that we would see Jesus as your Messiah, your anointed one, the King, who was marred beyond recognition for our sins, that we might be forgiven. 
And I pray, O oh God, for any who don't recognize him yet, that you would open their eyes and that you would use us to take this message to many who are still blinded, who still don't have eyes to see. Give them eyes to see and give us words to speak so that you might, through us, open their eyes so that they might see in Jesus, your King, your Messiah, and their Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.